like go live, but it does my um, it does everything, but lets me go live. see the go live button and it flashes and it, and it leaves. Is that what you're having with the internet? Is it something kicking off? No, everything is uh, Good morning, Cornerstone Church family. 
It's a blessing to be here, and we hope this Palm Sunday morning finds you rejoicing in the Lord and abounding in his grace and love this morning. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus that we want to praise today, and I wanted to make a personal comment to the family that uh, we, we miss you, and we're ready to get back to some sort of normal life, which I'm sure you all are. Although, just a few weeks ago, someone told me that normal is a setting on the dryer, so I'm not really sure what that's going to look like. But uh, for a few minutes, I want to encourage you and remind you of the eternal things of God that no one can take away. And one of those eternal things is peace. And as we think about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, and we think about what happened on this day of Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the authority of peace, but what were people, what were people looking for? I wonder sometimes if people weren't looking for peace the way they thought peace ought to look. And you know, the thought was that uh, a lot of people look for, for the good things in the wrong places. It appears here that a lot of people were looking for peace in the right place, but they were looking for the wrong peace. So where is the peace of Jesus today? And what is the effect of God's peace in our own lives? I guess I chose this little subject to talk about. It's not a little subject, but a little time to talk about this for one reason, because of what people were looking for as they seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem. And then also, as we look around in the world today, we think maybe that's an element that is missing in the lives of people. Where is Jesus' peace? I want to uh, go to some scriptures, and mainly that's what I'm going to be doing. Just as a reminder, there's no better way to say it than the, the way the scriptures say it. So we find in the second chapter of Ephesians that we are at peace with the Father because he abolished the enmity between us and the Father by the cross, and there's no more true peace than the peace that we can feel because we are set right. We are righteous in the Father's eyes. No more are our sins and iniquities remembered against us. That's the true peace, and that's what motivates us to allowing peace to be activated in our lives and having a meaning and having a work. We can't have real peace if we can't feel the peace of the Father and us. If we turn to Romans 5.1, we'll find that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And hallelujah, no matter what happens, we are accepted by God. This is paramount in the way that the peace affects us, as we just said. The peace of God gives us direction it guides our steps. In Romans 14, 9, it says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. In Galatians 6, 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Ephesians 6, 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So what we're seeing is this peace that we feel because we are friends with God, we are righteous before God, it motivates us and it makes a difference in our lives. In the second book of Timothy, second chapter, flee youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace that, that with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
so the peace of God gives us direction. It lights our pathway and it guides our feet. Excuse me, guides our feet. Next thing we'd like to think about the peace of God doing in our lives is it tells us how to control our minds and our hearts. And we read in Philippians, the fourth chapter, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I'd like to think just a little bit about this because more so than any day before now, we have things set before us. We have, we have people to listen to. We have articles to read. We have people telling us things. And that's where I found the element of peace maybe missing a little bit. But I'd like to go to the second book of Corinthians in the 10th chapter. We'll read that and think about what it says. Remember, we're talking about peace controlling our minds and hearts. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And I'm probably like many of the rest of you we talk about these things. We talk about this unsettled world that we live in. We think about what it might mean and we think about what normal might mean after this. And you know, there are conspiracy theories and there are martial law theories. There's theories about financial collapse and there's thoughts about socialism. And you know what can happen when we spend a lot of time thinking about these things. We're thinking about really imaginations. We don't know. A lot of people think they know. And a lot of people um, are spreading thoughts that, that really aren't proven. But as we heard last Sunday, this isn't our kingdom. Our kingdom is a higher calling. And we've also said that nothing can pluck us out of God's hand. So let's don't let our imaginations take us to places that are not productive. If we're going to be built up, we're going to have to be built up by the Word of God. And I find in my own life that it takes an effort because these things that we've been talking about, the, the theories are so captivating and they take a lot of our time. But when we're thinking about those things, we're not working in the vineyard of the Lord. We're not productive. Another thought about controlling our hearts and minds, another scripture. Colossians 3.15 says to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You know, sometimes the peace of God can be a little bit removed from us. Um, the peace of God can seem kind of distant. And about the only thing that we can say about that is if we really try it, instead of trying to figure out how it works and trying to put it all together, it works like this. You have to do this and you have to do this. Really what you have to do is fall on your face before God and pray that that peace will fill you and then it will. The eighth chapter of Romans tells us to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. So there's a great hope in the peace that Jesus brings. Jesus brought that peace as he rode into Jerusalem also. But I don't know how many people were looking for it. But to the people who look for the peace of Jesus, it's there. There's one more little thought about the peace of God that I didn't want to leave out. The peace of God will make you beautiful. In the 10th chapter of Romans, it says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. 
And surely if our feet are beautiful, the rest of us are beautiful too in God's eyes. Beauty to God is when you bring the gospel message to someone else and you use your body and you use the power that Jesus gives you to take that gospel of good tidings to the world. So we see that the peace of God is as available as it's ever been. And it's just our prayer that we don't let it hinge, don't, don't think that it hinges on our circumstance, but it's beyond that. We can find the peace of God in any circumstance, and there's testimony of those who have went before us that have done just that. So we just pray that you will be filled with that peace as you go through this day and the rest of whatever this world is going through. Clear up to eternity and enjoy then the peace, the full peace of God in his presence. Blessings to you all. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We know that you are here, and we know that you are always here. We know, Father, that you care about us, you care about your creation, and you have made a way that we can be right before you and that our sins can be forgiven and we can look to you for that peace. We thank you for the old rugged cross and the willingness to die on our behalf, to set our feet upon the rock and give us the peace that passes all understanding. Father, we want to pray for this Cornerstone family. We want to pray for the older ones. We want to pray for anyone who is discouraged or bowed down. We want to pray for the sick and the afflicted. And Father, we ask you to fill the hearts of each one of us with your word and with your truth, that we might go forward in your kingdom, in your vineyard, making a difference, bringing your word to the world. We pray for the sickness that's taking over this country and the world. Father, we pray for the healing of people. But more than that, we pray for the healing of hearts, that people would set up and take notice, and they would call upon you as their Savior and as their Redeemer. We pray for Bart today, Father, that you would be mouth and wisdom to him, that he would be filled with your Holy Spirit, and that he would bring us the words that would increase our productivity and take us on into eternity with you. We pray for families, for children, for husbands and wives. We just pray, Father, that we would remember you and that we would lean on you in these days and that we would have a hunger for your word as we live. Forgive us of our sins day by day and draw us ever nearer to you, and someday take us home to live with you eternally, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning and welcome to worship this morning. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 
chapter 21. The title of this morning's message is Rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. As we think about Palm Sunday this morning. Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11. Let's read it together if you have your Bibles. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethlehem, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded, and brought the ass and the colt, and put them, and and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth and of Galilee. Rejoice! The king comes riding into town with a message. This was prophesied, as Jesus quoted here, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. This, we know it as Palm Sunday. I think in, in Bible times it was referred to more correctly as Lamb Selection Day. And Jesus, it's no coincidence that he came riding into, to Jerusalem as that lamb, specifically on Lamb Selection Day. Let's get the setting here. Those of you that's familiar with the lay of the land in and around Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem today blankets four hills. Mount Acre up to the north, Mount Zion down to the southeast, Moriah, Mount Moriah sitting in the center, and Mount Olivet directly to the east of Mount Moriah. Mount Olivet, of course, is the tallest of these four mountains. And just over the ridge of Mount Olivet lies the little village of Bethany, and then on several miles uh, up to the north of Bethany is Jericho, and that's where this story begins. From Jericho, Jesus tells his disciples why he was going to Jerusalem. Rejoice, the king comes riding into town with a message. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, it says here. Let's, um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. 
Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them. Now when we look at a map today, we would say from Jericho that he would be going down to Jerusalem according to a map. But I think what he was referring to was he was going up the hill. He was going up to Jerusalem. We'll find many examples in scriptures where they went up to the city of God. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Verse 18, Matthew 20, verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief. Now listen, this is the message that Jesus was going to be delivering to Jerusalem. And it's a message that he brings to every one of us today. The Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him unto death. Verse 19, And shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he shall rise again. The message that Jesus Christ is bringing into town this week is the message of the gospel. He would be scourged. He would be crucified. But on the third day, he would rise again in victory. I can't think of a greater time, a greater need that we have today than this message that Jesus Christ is bringing in to your town and into my town. Rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. He would deliver a message of compassion and concern. As we go through this week with him, he will bring a message of warning and of judgment. He will bring a message of salvation and life. And most of all, a message of hope. As Jesus left Jericho and headed towards Jerusalem, his heart became burdened with this great message and the work of salvation that he was to do and to bring. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 24, 29 through 34, excuse me. As they departed out of Jericho towards Jerusalem, Jesus heard a faint cry. So this is out at the outskirts of Jericho. The scripture says here that the multitudes began to grow and to follow him. And the noise was great. But above that noise, Jesus hears a faint cry from a distance. O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he hears it again, possibly. O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops. And I don't know if the crowd was silenced, but as he looked towards these men, he said, he responded like this, what will you have me to do? And the blind men responded and said that our eyes may be opened. The scripture says in verse 34, immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. And that's my heart's cry this morning for every one of us that's hearing this message that Jesus is bringing into our town. That our eyes, our blind eyes would be open. That we would hear the message that he brings to us this week, this Passion Week. A message of mercy. A message of of victory and life as we apply it into our lives today.
Scripture says that he traveled from Jericho down to Bethany. Again, just outside of Jerusalem, up and over Mount Olivet. And there it was that he stopped and he asked for this donkey uh, in chapter 21 that we read, the text. This is a message that was prophesied beforehand. This message would be told throughout this week, but it's a message that would be told into the forever future. A message that Jesus would deliver over these next seven days that would affect all humanity. It's a message, again, that that began with compassion and weeping. It is sandwiched with judgment and warning. It climaxes with suffering, death, and salvation from our sin. And it is concluded with victory and power and hope as he is resurrected from the dead. As he rides into town with this message, it covers so much territory. It spans from the prophecies of old into the future events yet to come. This message covers so much time, so many people, so many events, that I can only begin to summarize it this morning. The message that this king is bringing into town. Many times a minister may suggest homework for the audience or for the congregation to read after the message. I don't know if I'd call this homework or not, but as I've studied through this message and pulled up some of my old notes, this message spans through a lot of chapters. And so especially for those of you who have been complaining about being bored, with this virus and you're homebound, you might consider reading these chapters this week if you want to pull out a pad and a pencil that covers the Passion Week uh, pretty well as I see it. It's a lot of chapters, a lot of reading. Matthew chapters 21 through 27, that's seven chapters. Mark chapters 11 through 15, five chapters. Luke Chapters 19 through 23, five chapters. And the Gospel of John, chapters 12 through 19, which is eight chapters. That's 25 chapters. But if you divide that by six days, it's, it's in the neighborhood of four chapters per day. And again, if, if you're finding a lot of time and, you know, many times through this Passion Week, we say, well, we just didn't have time to really get into the message. This week, I think you have plenty of time. And the more we prepare as we approach Good Friday at the cross and the empty tomb on Sunday, the more that we prepare this week, the more we'll get out of this message that he brings into your town. Rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. Again, on Lamb Selection Day, the family would select their lamb. Each household would take unto them a lamb. The scripture says in Exodus chapter 12, it was to be a perfect lamb, a chosen lamb, and a personal lamb. Is it any wonder that Jesus came riding into town with his message on this particular day as a lamb, according to Isaiah chapter 53? Have you selected your lamb? As we approach this message this morning, it's so critical that you first choose a lamb, that you choose the lamb, and that you choose your lamb. This message must be applied personally in our lives this morning.
The Mount of Olives is about 300 feet higher than Mount Moriah. And somewhere as he bridges um, the crown of Mount Olivet, somewhere on the slope, Jesus stops and he looks over Jerusalem. The Bible says he weeps. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Verse 41, Luke 19, 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept. This word wept means to deeply sob. Why was he weeping? Why was he sobbing so deeply? He was weeping for the people. I personally don't believe that he was weeping for himself. He knew where he was going. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem. He's already quoted that, that he would be scourged, mocked and scourged, and eventually crucified unto death. But he wasn't crying for himself like we tend to do. He was crying for the people. He was weeply, deeply sobbing for the people. Maybe it was because he knew that they would be crying Hosanna as he entered into town. And yet a week later, that same crowd would be crying, crucify him, crucify him. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that as I've looked into it. And his weeping here, I find some additional thoughts. The word Hosanna that they are shouting as he entered into town doesn't carry the same meaning as we would use it today in praise. On Palm Sunday day, as many churches would wave the palm in praise for our salvation that this king brought. As you look through scripture, the palm branch was used in many different ways, depending on the time era. There was, there was times they would use the palm for, for praise and for shouting victory. But this word, uh, the, the, the actual using of the palm and the, and the word Hosanna that they are shouting is based on a demand and it means to save us. But more than that, it means save us now. So as these people were, were possibly, as they were crying Hosanna, they, they were looking at a king coming riding into town, uh, as Randy said in opening, because of their personal agenda. They wanted peace, all right, but they wanted salvation from the Romans, and they wanted it now. And as they shouted Hosanna, it wasn't because they were praising him for what he was going to do at the cross, of course. They were, they were demanding him as king to save us and save us now. As you see, they were expecting King Jesus to take up his sword and to conquer the Romans and to do it now, to save us now. Keep that in mind. The palm branch carried a different meaning later on in biblical history as the time of the Maccabees came on and the zealots would use the palm branch as an emblem that they had conquered and killed anyone who was opposing God. So they did it in the name of God, and they actually killed people because they wasn't embracing according to their opinion and their interpretation of God, and they would kill for it. 
And this happened other times in history, of course. But the zealots would actually wave the palm branch, and it was a sign of victory, but it was because they had killed and they had conquered. Now listen closely. That would be more in the context of like we, we would use, the countries would use a, a flag today. So they would wave the palm branch claiming that victory that they had won and that they had conquered. Not because they were receiving him as Savior like we would today, but in their zealousness, they were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Go kill them, Romans. Let's take this city with blood so that we can have control. Shouting Hosanna and waving the palms and building momentum, that just kept getting louder and louder as he entered the city. It's possible, more probable, that this became more of a political march than it was rejoicing over the Passover lamb as we do today. Here in Luke chapter 19, in verse 39, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. The crowd was getting too loud. And he answered and said, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I don't know what you get out of that. Jesus was saying that if he was to silence the crowd, even the stones of the Jerusalem walls and buildings would cry out. And then it says in verse 41, he began to weep. Why was he weeping? Because they had built their city on blood and conquering so that they would gain control. This is a direct reference from Habakkuk chapter 2. As, as Habakkuk gives warning, seven, uh, five woes to Babylon. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Woe unto him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, and that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and has sinned against thy soul. Listen, verse 11, For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the tender shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city of of by iniquity. And it goes on. Habakkuk was, was warning the people that they were building their city on blood and conquering for unjust gain of control. And I believe that's exactly why Jesus was weeping over the city of Jerusalem for the same two reasons. And it goes much deeper than what, what we see on the surface. Jesus knew their hearts, and Jesus knows our hearts today. He was weeping because they were wanting to take the city by blood for unjust gain and power. And as Jesus was on the slope of Olivet, he began to weep. And he began to see their palms waving. And I suppose he was looking in their hearts just as the zealots. We're going to take this city. We're going to claim this victory. We're going to take it by blood. And he began to weep. Yes, he knew that it would be his own blood that would bring this victory.
As Jesus rode into town, his message covered a lot of detail. And each aspect of his message and these details carry a wealth of meaning for us to apply into our lives today. And of course, I don't intend to go through all of those 25 chapters that I mentioned, but that's really the message that he brings to town. And if you stop and look at, at that message and everything that it entailed, and I especially noticed all the different people groups that that message reached. Let's just look at a quick summary. Rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. Sunday, and I realize that there's different uh, interpretations, a different thinking as far as which day of the week, but as you go through your Passion Week this week, you might uh, try to study out some of this, and I'm sure you'll get a lot more detail out of it than what I'll mention right now. Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as the sacrificial lamb. And there's a sermon there in itself. Jesus is that lamb. And again, will we select that lamb for us? Monday, as he curses the fig tree, he walks past the fig tree and it's flourishing with leaves, but there's no fruit. And you know the account, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered. This is a message for the Pharisees. But what about us? Monday evening, the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus finds people selling animals for sacrifice and business. Business is taking place inside of the temple. And Jesus pronounces a symbolic judgment upon this irreverence for the Lord's house of prayer. And again, I just ask the question, is there a message here for us? The Lord's house has become pretty casual nowadays. What if Jesus was to come in to our place of prayer? And I'm not speaking about just the walls here at Cornerstone or your place of meeting but into our own hearts where we meet him is the reverence. Tuesday in Matthew chapter 22, and if you care through, you can thumb through some of these scriptures. Matthew 22, Jesus addresses the message on the final separation which is to come. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, there will be a final separation. Verse 13, then said the king to the servants, bind them hand and foot and take them away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The message that Jesus brought was very clear and very bold, and it's a message for us to take in this our day. Verses 15 through 22, he addresses lawfully paying tribute to Caesar. And I'll not say just a lot on that. We know that, that the coins of that day had a, an image stamped on that coin of Caesar. And uh, as, as the, the Pharisees thought they was going to trip him up and ask him, well, who, so you say we should be loyal to you as king, but should we pay tribute to Caesar? And he just simply asked them for the coin, and he pointed to the image that was stamped on the back of that coin, or possibly both sides, and he said, to this man, you should pay your taxes, in my words. And it silenced them. There's a message there 
as well in verses 22 through 32, Jesus addresses marriage here and marriage in the kingdom to come as they were asking questions. And God, uh, Jesus says in verse 32, God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. In chapter 22, again, verse 37 through 40, they're asking him again. They're trying to trip him up as he enters into town, as he brings this message through the week. And they ask him concerning the commandments. And Jesus says in verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is likened, to the, and it, likened unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 40, And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I think this is a, a message that, that probably... Uh, supersedes everything that he's been saying. Everything about the Ten Commandments, everything about the entire law of God is about the agape, the love of God. And everything hangs on this, he says. Does it mean that other doctrines and, and other scriptures are not as important or not important. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that everything in the Word of God hangs upon this. Verse 40, these two commandments, the agape love. We get into chapter 23, Matthew 23, verses 13 through 33. We find the seven woes of hypocrisy. And that also parallels the five woes of Habakkuk that, we, that I referenced earlier. A lot of the same thoughts there from Babylon. And I might just mention here as you look at chapters, at Matthew chapter 23, the seven woes to the Pharisees, I believe that there definitely is a message to the church today. And I look at this as a sign of the time. Jesus is bringing this into as he gets into chapter 23, 24, and 25, many times we hear the signs of the time limited to chapters 24 and 25. I personally believe that 23 is the preface. And this is speaking to the church. Many times are signs of the time. We're looking at uh, political events. We're looking at events out into the world. This is speaking to the people of God. Hypocrisy and legalism should have no place in the heart of the child of God. And as we see that creeping into the church in these last days, I believe it is a sign of the time. I believe there's a message here for every one of us. I'm not pointing fingers at any particular uh, church group, people group, or even you. But I do think that there's a message that each one of us should apply to our own hearts. Seven woes of hypocrisy. And Jesus spends, at least it's recorded, more verses on that topic than anything else that he brings this week. So it's a warning to us today, especially in these last times. Our heart needs to be real. We need, like Randy said, we need to get our hearts right with God, every one of us. Seven woes of hypocrisy. Selfishness and self-righteousness should find no place in the heart of the child of God. Goes on into chapter 24 and 25. It's a message of the last days. And he foretells the temple being destroyed uh, religious deception, wars, disease. Does that apply today? 
famine, death, martyrs. And then finally in, in chapter 24, verse 27, I believe, the Lord is coming again. Rejoice, the king is riding into town with a message. And as he's going to the cross, as he's going to the grave, and then we know on the third day he comes out of the grave. Rejoice, the king comes out of the grave. Our faith is built on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the message that he brought into the city that day. He spent six days telling all of this that we've been covering in much more detail. He goes to the cross for our salvation, to pay the penalty for our sin. He comes forth out of the grave on the third day, and today we rejoice because the king comes out of the grave. And here in chapter 24, verse 27, rejoice, the king is coming again. I think I heard hallelujah come from your couch. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Rejoice, the king comes riding into town with a message. And the message includes, rejoice, the king comes out of the grave. And it also includes, rejoice, the king is coming again. Hallelujah. There's a lot more that we could say. Thursday evening, he spends his time breaking bread for the last time with his disciples. And there is a lot that could be said from that, a lot of, uh, a lot of content that we should be applying into our lives. As Jesus washed their feet, he gave them a message on humility, on servitude, we know that over a couple-day period, Thursday and Friday, Judas spent conspiring against his Lord and eventually selling him out. As they leave the upper room late that night, Jesus is arrested. I heard one sermon one time titled, The Night They Arrested God. Friday comes, and Friday afternoon, Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, as this message climaxes, and they crucified him. We'll hear more about that Friday evening. And there they crucified him. And then again in chapter 28, he is not here for he is risen. Chapter 28, verse 6. For he is not here, but he is risen. This is the victory that Jesus brought into town this week. Not only as he proclaimed it audibly, but he lived it, he died, and he rose again, that we can have life abundantly with him. And then we'll conclude in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and spoke unto them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. 
rejoice. The king comes riding into town with a message. Rejoice. The king comes out of the grave in victory. Rejoice. The king is coming again. And here, his last words, rejoice. We've got a message to tell. If you're really feeling this message in your heart and you've applied it into your heart, you've got a message to tell. The world today needs this message. And it's really a message that spans more than the seven days that we've talked about. It's the message of the gospel from cover to cover, Old Testament and new. We've got a message to tell, to teach, to baptize, to observe, and to serve. Rejoice. We've got a message to tell. I don't know about you, but um, I think it's critical during these times that we keep sounding out the gospel, that we keep telling the message, and that's why we're videoing this this morning, but we do miss getting together. One thing that I really miss about public worship is singing. And I'm not going to sing, but I am going to quote a hymn in closing. It is from number 280 in Worship His Majesty, a book that we use often here at Cornerstone. The king is coming. The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the streets. All the builders' tools are silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives cease their labors. In the courtroom, no debate. Work on earth is all suspended as the king comes through the gate. Happy faces line the hallways, those whose lives have been redeemed. Broken homes that he has mended, those from prison he has freed. Little children and the aged hand in hand stand all aglow. Who were crippled, broken, ruined, clad in garments white as snow. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng, the flurry of God's trumpets, spin the end of sin and wrong. Regal robes are now unfolding. Heaven's grand stand all in place. Heaven's choir now assembled. Start to sing Amazing Grace. Oh, the King is coming. The King is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we observe this Palm Sunday, a time of Victory, a time that we lay down our uh, tree branches, our palms, to honor you and to praise you. You know our hearts, Lord, and if, if there's any of us that are laying down this branch for the wrong reason, if we're trying for any reason to, to take control or to, to try to control our situation, even at others' expense, by blood, so to speak. I just pray, Lord, that you'll cleanse us, that you'll help us to renew uh, in our hearts this message of peace, this message of grace, and this message of victory. Help us to overcome our sin through the precious blood of the Lamb. I thank you for this message, Lord. I thank you that though it is, is, entails warning and judgment, that it also concludes with a message of victory and of hope. 
I pray, Lord, that, that you will come into our hearts, Jesus. That you will come in with your message and that you will change our hearts and work in our lives as a testimony to the world because we do have a message to tell. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the empty tomb. I thank you for the people of God this morning. Those that are listening on phone lines, those that's viewing on video in this service, but there's people of God all around the world. And we know that, that there's heartache, there's struggle, there's sickness all over the world the same. And I pray that you'll work in the hearts of men not only to heal and to overcome this virus that's plaguing us, but I pray more deeply that you will heal the hearts of the people, that they will hear this message that you have brought into the city, into our city, and that the hearts will be changed and they will come to know you because we know that we are living in the last days. And I just pray, Lord, that you will bring your people to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We, again, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. It's been a privilege serving you. The Word of God is rich, and there's so much to say. And I just encourage you to allow God to work through you, uh, through the Holy Spirit, uh, you don't have to go out on a, pre on a street corner to preach this message. But live it in your life and allow your life to be a living testimony to this message that Jesus brought into our city. Upcoming services this Friday evening is Good Friday. And Brother Clem Bowman will be bringing the message at 7 o'clock. Friday evening, we're hoping to both live stream and have our phone lines open so that you can receive that message from your homes. Sunday morning then, we're looking forward to the resurrection morning. Brother Gail Turner plans to bring that message of the resurrection of victory and life. So we invite you to join us at that time. In the meanwhile, let's be reading the Bible uh, especially this week as we prepare and concentrate on this Passion Week and we look forward to Good Friday and Resurrection Morning. May the Lord bless you.